Thank you for putting that together. Uh, our, uh, our message is going to be from Luke chapter 17. And I'll make mention, I don't know uh, if Gerald mentioned it earlier on the, on the fellowship lunch next week. Don't think that that's limited to members because there's a membership meeting afterwards. Y'all come, you know, bring a side dish, we'll help you eat it. And uh, even, even if you're learning about the church and, and uh, have questions about how meetings function and other things and you're not a member yet, I, I don't know of any privileged information that's discussed this time around. You're welcome to lunch for, for the meeting, so um, you are all welcome to come. As we turn our Bibles to Luke chapter 17, we remember that last week we had uh, just heard Jesus uh, warning the Pharisees that the kingdom of God doesn't come with signs to be observed. Um, the term signs there, uh, you should know, is, is miracle, miracles or wonders, visible signs, which Jesus performed many of during his ministry on earth. And I invoked in numerous verses there from Scripture uh, references as to how of Israel had acknowledged that an enormous number of signs had been accomplished by Christ. Uh, but none of those people could enter the kingdom of And signs, that was our message last week, because they remained spiritually blind. They were blind to Christ. They needed to have their eyes opened to Him, uh, opened by the sovereign Spirit of God to recognize that Jesus is the Christ. The kingdom of God had arrived. Jesus says, it's already in your midst, even as it remains in our midst today. But they couldn't see it. They could not see it. Uh, By comparison, those of us who have trusted in Christ, we have had our hearts and our minds opened to God, uh, embracing the ministry and the majesty of Jesus in order to enter His kingdom by the Spirit. It's a spiritual rebirth as we looked at John chapter 3 briefly last week. Um, After service last week, Pastor Weiler brought a verse to me uh, that he was reminded of. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14 that, that states this principle very well. A natural man, that is, a man who is unsaved, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. For no one, or who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him. But Paul the Apostle writes, we have the mind of Christ. So God has sovereignly, by his Spirit, regenerated our hearts, giving us the mind of Christ. Obviously, that is is an understanding of Christ, not literally his mind, of course. Uh, But we have the same understanding, a spiritual awakening to understand Christ. We have his mind. There are innumerable passages in Scripture that illuminate this reality of becoming alive and born again uh, to God. But for just one more, add 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. As it is written, not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love Him. 
But God has revealed them to us through His Spirit. We see. We see the wonderful majesty of Christ. So we gather together today uh, to worship Christ, not because we're especially smart, a lot more intelligent than anyone else, but only because God has bestowed upon us a privilege to see His Son, revealing Him through His Spirit. He's cured our spiritual blindness. We have been uh, recipients of what we sang about just a couple songs ago, His grace. God's grace is an unmerited favor, an unearned uh, favor of God. Uh, The doctrines of grace, they're deeply humbling to us. Uh, When we speak about total depravity, uh, predestination, election, uh, God's choice, these are vital for us because they amplify our worship of God rather than elevating the rationale of man. It is God who has done this miracle in us. We did not have an intellectual capacity to understand these things until the Spirit revealed it to us. Um, It remained impossible then for the Pharisees and other unbelievers around Israel to see God's kingdom even though the king stood right there in front of them. He stood right there in their midst. They were spiritually dead. They were blind and they could not see. And and even today, as God's kingdom remains invisible at this hour, He still reigns, Christ reigns in our regenerated hearts, by whom the Holy Spirit is sealed, Ephesians 1.14 says, as His own possession to the glory, uh, the praise of His glory. Folks, God's kingdom is hidden today to those who cannot see But it won't always be. It's not always going to be hidden. Uh, Christ will return. He will assume His rightful throne. He will will establish His visible kingdom. And that which is now invisible will suddenly become visible. All will see. Um, Verses 20 and 21 that we're looking at particularly today Uh, Remind us, however, with the spiritual rebirth, that we must already be members of the invisible kingdom in order to enter the visible kingdom when it comes. We're not going to see that kingdom finally with Christ there and say, Oh, well today I think I'll go for some of that. No, you must enter through faith in that which is unseen. By the time we see it, it's going to be too late. That day is going to come like a thief. Um, There are going to be no second chances given. Christ's glory uh, is going to be seen by all. It's going to be glorious. He will be victorious. It will be righteous and fearsome. And it's going to be visible throughout all of the earth. The entire earth will see that day. And, And since the creation account in Genesis... Which no human, by the way, was there to see. But since that day of creation, Christ's physical return is going to be the most magnificent display of God's power and glory that the world has ever seen. It's going to be incredibly powerful and magnificent. It's going to be, this might alarm you, it is going to be a day of God's divine judgment upon sin 
and all ungodliness. And just as we saw in our scripture reading earlier from Revelation chapter 19, there will come a crushing defeat to all of God's enemies. There will be a crushing defeat as he initiates his reign over his physical kingdom. Listen as I read a portion of it to you one more time. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Amazing, the scene that we read about there. We who have entered His spiritual kingdom by faith, trusting in His sacrificial atonement for our sins, His his dying for our sins on the cross, His resurrection again on the third day, we will watch and we will see as the Lamb is vindicated for the unjust suffering that He endured at the hands of sinful man. As Revelation 1 verse 7 assures, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him. So it is to be. Amen. John MacArthur writes, The mourning of the rest of the earth's inhabitants is not that which accompanies genuine repentance. We see that in Revelation 9.21. It is the result, MacArthur writes, of guilt for sin and fear of punishment. This is the day of the revealing of the Son of Man. It's also announced in 2 Peter chapter 3 as the day of the Lord. You might have heard that term passed around, that phrase passed around, the day of the Lord, and it will fall upon unbelieving humanity as one cataclysmic judgment. It's a day of reckoning. Uh, what a day that will be. You know, for Christians, for those of us who are, who are redeemed in Christ, songwriter Jim Hill captures the essence of our response, the response of God's elect when he writes the verses, what a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see, when I look upon the face of the one who saved me by his grace. When He takes me by the hand and leads me to the promised land, what a day, what a glorious day that will be. Folks, what a day that will be when the kingdom comes. Luke 17, it teaches us that Christ's return, it is, it's going to be sudden. The world will be completely unprepared. And the Apostle Peter describes how many will mock the promise of His coming, even right up to the moment that Christ appears. I think I'm going to use that passage in 2 Peter chapter 3 next week as our Scripture reading. That, That also is a picture of this same event we are looking at. Peter warns that that day of the Lord will come like a thief. So His return is going to be sudden. It is going to be a surprise. We will also see as we read today, it's going to be a day of separation. Believers will be separated from unbelievers. One will be taken while another is left. 
Another in the same bed, by the way, we'll read, is left. That's likely intended to signify a husband and a wife being separated where one has trusted in the promise of the Son of Man and His return while the other hasn't. In case, by the way, you aren't aware that that title, Son of Man, that we see Jesus use so much of Himself, it is a favorite title that Jesus uses for Himself, Son of Man, that arises from the Old Testament, uh, especially the prophet Daniel. And we see it also in Ezekiel, but in the prophet Daniel, chapter 7, Daniel writes, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming in the clouds, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. Who are we talking about? Jesus. His dominion, writes Daniel, is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Obviously there, an Old Testament reference to the day of the Lord and his eternal kingdom, the reign of Christ. When the Son of Man comes, it will be a day where one is taken, another is left. So the day of the Lord will be a day of separation. It will be a day of separation even of the closest friendships that we have enjoyed while one is rescued and another is left behind to suffer the horrific judgment of God's wrath. With that said then, the day of the Lord, this day that we're talking about Christ's return, it's also going to be a day that is severe. It's going to be very severe. It will bring the severest judgment upon sinful humanity that has ever been displayed by a holy and righteous God. Revelation 19 describes it as the wine press of the fierce wrath of God. In our passage, Jesus suggests it will be a judgment that eclipses both that of the flood in the day of Noah and the judgment upon wicked, wicked Sodom, that fury that God poured out against a behavior that is now normalized, by the way, in the United States. That draws the wrath of God. Uh, I'm going to read this whole passage That's verses 22 through 37. We're not going to get through it all today. It'll probably take at least three weeks. But for us to grasp the monumental consequence of Christ's return, His physical return, it'll be beneficial to read it in its entirety, at least one together before we start to parse it to pieces. As I read, uh, as I told earlier, and as I read now, uh, be alert that this will be a day of surprise, it will be a day of separation, and it will be a day that is severe when the kingdom comes. Beginning in verse 22, And Jesus said to the disciples, The days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. They will say to you, Look there, look here, do not go away and do not run after them. For just like the lightning... When it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines into the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in His day. But first He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. 
They were eating. They were drinking. They were marrying. They were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating. They were drinking. They were buying. They were selling. They were planting. They were building. But on that day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be, listen to this, it will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down to take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, and the other will be left. There will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken, the other will be left. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, and the other will be left. And the answering, this being the disciples, They said to Jesus, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. Pretty warm and fuzzy, isn't it? You know, I grew up, as many of you know, in a a liberal apostate church. They took very little literal in the Bible. Um, They would never, by the way, growing up in that church and my parents being in there until they came to Christ and actually left that church, they were there 47 years. And I was there throughout my youth. And in that tradition, there was a lot of scripture reading. There's usually two from the epistles, normally the New Testament, sometimes the Old, and then one gospel reading. So there were three separate scripture readings every Sunday. They never read anything like this. As I talked to my mom and my dad, I said, as we were talking, discussing some things that were going on years ago when they were still alive and they were deciding whether they stay in this place where they had spent 47 years, um, I read some passages like this. And I said, when have you ever heard your own pulpit read anything like that? My dad looks at me, he goes, never, never. They hopscotch around Scripture for stuff that is warm and fuzzy. Jesus did not do that. Jesus did not do that. Um, Yet that same church, apostate as it is, um, said, come in here to meet Jesus. As Christ's crucifixion draws ever so near now, we're very close to the point of the crucifixion, weeks away, uh, he begins preparing his disciples his disciples who are going to be left sitting in a world much, much the way that we're left sitting today, folks. Similar situation Christians face. And he says in verse 22, the days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man. You know, over the course of almost three years now, they have seen Christ. They, they saw Him come in the flesh. They've received Him as Lord, and, and over the course of many days, they, they have heard Him preach, and they have, they have seen Him perform many signs. And, and after His ascension into heaven, His disciples are going to yearn for those days. 
They're going to long for those days that they used to enjoy with His physical presence on earth. Yet it says they will not see it. Jesus is preparing them to endure a long period of time without Him. Uh, Of course, we know that that Christ died long before, or excuse me, uh, yeah, Christ did die, but then the disciples died long before He ever came back again for His return. There's been long been a rumor out there, and I think I might have been jarred to this talking to Trevor last week. I'm not sure if this was the passage that, that he was referencing, but there's long been a rumor, you might have heard it somewhere, at one time or another, it's folklore really, that Jesus promised that one of his disciples would never die. That comes from John chapter 21, verse 21. And that's where Peter is warned by Jesus at that point that about the hostile nature of Peter's death. You know, Peter died a pretty rotten death too. And uh, at that point, Peter, Peter points at another disciple, it's presumably John, and he says, Lord, What about this man? And Jesus replied, If I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. And we then read, Therefore, this saying went out amongst the brethren that that disciple would not die. And because of that statement, some today still perpetuate this, it's kind of a fantasy that the Apostle John um, never died. Uh, But in fact if they'd simply read the balance of, of the verse 23 there, they would see, yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die. So, so Scripture immediately nixes uh, that type of myth that John would not, in fact, ever die, and then repeats the identical phrase saying, if only if I want him to remain until I come. I mean, they would never die. He'd be here until he, Jesus comes back. What is that to you? So, so Jesus' response to Peter is clearly to be understood as Peter. You know, it's none of your business what I'm doing with someone else. Um, if Jesus' point were that John would never die, but would instead um, remain until he comes, as the passage says, I have one question. Where is he? I, I mean, he, he was a disciple. Uh, he's an apostle, actually ordained by God into the apostolic office, a proclaimer of God's righteousness and Christ's uh, redemption, you'd, you'd at least think that you'd have a Facebook page or something. You know, you, you would think. So it would be entirely unsupported by Scripture to think that John could live 2,000 years and still be here today. Um, in Luke 17.22, though, we are told that the apostles would exhaust their natural lives, longing to see one of those days of the Son of Man. But Jesus assures them, you will not see it. You won't see it. There's going to be a prolonged delay until Christ's return. Uh, This yearning, by the way, this longing that Jesus speaks about, it's been experienced by millions of Christians for the last 2,000 years, a longing throughout church history, a longing to see a return of those days that Christ was on the earth, the days that he walked the earth. And Scripture assures us that that day is coming. Folks, that day is coming. We long for those days. And though we weren't given the distinct and unique privilege to walk with Christ 2,000 years ago, we do read about him. We do know all that he had done. 
how he loved, how he displayed compassion, his wisdom, and how he lived with man and loved man. Uh, so we, we know Christ. We know who he was. Our spirit testifies to him. So we too, in a similar, similar way, long for his return again. We long for those days. And although there have been generations, many generations now, who have not lived to see it, there is going to be a gener- generation who will, and that does. Um, with no one knowing the day nor the hour, his imminent return, that meaning his return could happen at any time, that has been a hope and comfort to Christians throughout 2,000 years. Any day could be that day. Um, the fact Christ may return at any moment, it's a basis, did you know, of the final prayer expressed in the Bible. That's in Revelation 22 where Jesus promises, yes, I am coming quickly. And where our heart responds in the same way that the Apostle John did as he was responding as he wrote Revelation. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. Boy, we can't wait for that day. The heart of every regenerated Christian yearns with with great expectancy for the return of Christ because we, we live on an earth that is corrupted by sin. It is completely corrupted by sin. The saturation of sin in our communities and and in our workplaces and in our families, add to that how it is now all enhanced by every type of media, every type of news. It forces us to endure and experience much the same as righteous Lot. Remember him? 2 Peter 2.7 Righteous Lot who was oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men for what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Do you feel out of place? I know I do. Are you tormented by your experience on earth? Do you long for a day when the kingdom comes? Do you suffer? Do you groan in the current condition, this state that we are in? Because Christ's disciples do. They long for the days of the coming of the Son of Man. And along with many of you who've expressed to me your dismay, similar dismay, along with that, I'm troubled as well by a generation who calls themselves Christians, folks, who by their own confession admit, I don't care. They say, I don't care. Um, what consenting adults do in, their, in the privacy of their own homes it will never affect me. You want to bet? You want to bet it won't affect you? I think we've seen enough of history now to see that it affects all of us. What lies Satan sows as he, as he prowls, about, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking somebody to devour, even our own families? Did you ever notice in 1 Peter 5 verse 8, 
that it indicates that Satan roars as he prowls about. He roars as he prowls. He doesn't even hide his presence. He roars out in the open where everybody can see. Everybody can see it. Nobody can deny it. This is the world in which we live. We'll beat beat up on him a little bit and ask uh, God to give him grace later. Fornication and adultery resulting in millions of babies being sacrificed. Children trafficked and raped for profit. An older generation financing the next into fiscal obliteration. Parents delegating their responsibility to train up their children to strangers and the government. Men dressing up in women's clothes as they read stories to school children. This is the world in which we live. Do you notice how each of these share at least one thing in common? Parents who don't love their children. Parents who do not love their children. Satan is on the prowl. He is roaring. He's announcing himself with a roar. He's in the public square roaring and people claiming to be Christian dare to suggest it doesn't affect me. I don't care. Think about that. Think about how far that has come. Where, where is the, the spirit of conviction for sin? Where is the fear of God? Where, where is the longing for His coming? It was at this point... I was going to read Romans 8 where we're told the whole creation groans waiting uh, the day of his appearing uh, to be released from the slavery of corruption that we're in. Uh, That reference wasn't quite pointed or severe enough, I don't think. It's more appropriate to cite Jude, verse 17. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ that they were saying to you, In the last time, there will be mockers, following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Born again. We find ourselves waiting anxiously, impatiently enduring as we watch for Christ's return. Even as the corruption of the world, it it torments us. Tears us up to see what is going on around us. We're not alone, folks. This isn't something strange. Do not think that something strange is happening to you. Um, You need to ask yourself, are you offended? Are you offended at all by the world? in which you live, do you long at all for this coming of the Son of Man? Or do you long for the world in which you live, hoping that Jesus Christ will somehow get delayed? See the difference? That will provide a fair indication of the condition of the heart, because the Apostle John warns us, 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. The world is passing away. It is passing away, and also it's lusts. But the one who does the will of God endures forever. Forever. You know, certainly here John isn't prohibiting enjoying a good meal. Enjoying a holiday with your family. He isn't prohibiting that we embrace some of the certain comforts that the world offers us. Electricity and air conditioning and those wonderful uh, mattresses that we lie on at night with the ceiling fan blowing. All the wonderful experiences like those that we enjoy through the course of our life. Those are categorically amoral. They're not moral things. And it's right to remain ever thankful for all of these that we experience, all the good things that God blesses us with. But the corruption of the sinful world, its lusts, the arrogant pride, causing us to long for the return of the Son of Man, they're offensive. They ought to remain offensive because we belong to Him having been given the mind of Christ. Folks, we see things rightly. We understand we are looking for Him. It will be a glorious day when the kingdom comes. Under this passage, we're going to look at it a good bit closer. Not today. Not today. Yet before I call the men uh, forward to serve the Lord's Supper, I I want to draw attention to uh, one more thing. One more thing. Before describing the splendor of His return, Christ prepares his disciples, of course, to anticipate a long delay. And this period between his first advent, advent, that is his first coming, and his second advent, which is his future coming, that's that's the church age, we call it. During this time, it's going to be one that's hostile towards believing Christians. It's going to be hostile. Most of the time when we, we think hostility, we think physical persecution, Right? But verse 23 emphasizes how Christians will also be vulnerable to the proliferation of much false teaching. In a parallel and I would say complementary text found in Matthew 24 verse 24, Jesus says this, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. So if they say to you, Behold, he's in the wilderness, do not go out there. Or behold, he's he's in the inner, inner rooms, do not believe him. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. See the commonality there? In Luke 17, verse 23, Jesus warns, They will say to you, Look there, look here, do not go away, and do not run after them. While Christ is gone, we need to be wary of false teachers. They don't announce themselves as false teachers. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. They they look like sheep. They act like sheep. But if I were to summarize these, just these two verses, 22 and 23, that Jesus gives directly before his sudden and majestic return, it would be like this. I'm going to be gone for a long time. 
You are going to long for my return during that time, but as my disciples, do not be deceived in the meantime. Do not allow yourselves to be deceived by false teachers. In Matthew, Jesus assures many false Christs will come to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Don't think you can't be misled. False teachers, they they have minions. They direct people to them. They redirect people to them. And they'll say, come and follow me. Come and follow me. Uh, This is probably where it's appropriate, just briefly here, uh, to offer some stern warnings against cult leaders such as Jim Jones. The reverend, they called him Sun Young Moon. David Koresh. All claim to have been Christ or some manifestation of a reincarnated Christ. Folks, such cults are numerous. They're all over the place. You deserve a fair warning, so here it is. Christ is not coming to Waco. Alright, you're not going to have to go and find Him in a corner somewhere. Lightning is going to flash when He returns. He's not popping in and out for visits to your bedroom at night. Most of us have encountered people who say things like that. You know, Jesus meets with me privately. And we talk alone, privately. Really. How do you know it's Him? Because my Bible says His return is going to be a little more fantastic than that. Yet false prophets abound, folks. This this is dead serious. They, They abound... They are both empowered and they are informed, uh, informed by the unseen demonic realm who, who they know many secret things about you. They know many secret things about you. Don't be deceived by false prophets who prophesy about your, feature, your future by commenting about something from your past. Information that is readily attained from your past. Let me illustrate. You might be invited, and this isn't just for young people. This is for old people as well. You might be invited to attend a collegiate prophecy conference. I hope you don't go, but you might be invited. To a prophecy conference with friends from your dorm and a person you've never met prophesies over you. They say something impressive like you're going to be a very influential politician. God has shown this to me. And you think to yourself, ha, you know what? I was just researching last week on Google, because that's where you find all answers. I was just researching last week about what it takes to enter politics. And, and, And I even wrote it in my diary about what my thoughts and plans are. And and I never told anybody about it. In fact, I've even thought about changing my college major over to politics. Nobody knows about that. You want to bet? Do you want to bet? The demonic realm has access to everything you Google, everything that you write. They've been here on the earth the whole time that we haven't, they even, know, um, they even know your grandma's maiden name. 
might impress you if somebody comes up and prophesies over you and gives you that type of information. Folks, that is the demonic realm. Don't follow them. This is why Colossians chapter 2 warns us against following after dreamers. Dreamers who go into great detail about visions they have seen. God doesn't communicate to His church through prophecies that can't be verified. The demonic realm is incredibly powerful and the danger lurks. It lurks as you, as you tell yourself, you know, I, I must be really important. That God were to send a prophet like that to me and tell me something that no one else could ever know. None of my friends have ever received such a prophecy about themselves. This has got to be divine. It's got to be from God. And, and it makes you feel significant. They, they play on pride. And then they tell you, would you like to hear more? Follow me. Follow me. And Satan has sprung his trap. Folks, think about it. How do you believe that Jim Jones got all of those people to drink that Kool-Aid? He impressed them. He impressed them. He brainwashed them. We don't drink Kool-Aid around here. We stick to the user manual, folks. We don't offer strange and deceptive spirits and doctrines. We don't follow them. When Christ comes, we're going to know it. We're going to know it. And that's where we will pick up next week. I'm going to invite the